Hi everyone and welcome back to Dark as Hell. I'm your host Maggie and let's just jump right on into the rest of the story about the disappearance of Maura Murray. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. We arrive back at the scene we discussed yesterday. Mora's seemingly abandoned 99 Saturn crashed into a snowbank on Route 112, also known as Wild Amunsak Road. Two locals who lived on the scene, Faith Westerman and Butch Atwood, who actually spoke with Mora himself, both called the police to alert them of the accident. When Sergeant Cecil Smith arrived on the scene, Mora was nowhere to be found. Shit, as the kids say, is about to get weird. At 7.56 p.m., EMS arrived on the scene, and just one minute later, a fire truck arrived immediately after to help clear the scene. Around 8 or 8.30, there was a report that was late or later reported sighting of a person fitting the description of Mora. Rick Forcier, who was a contractor returning from work in Franconia, claims he saw a person moving quickly on foot eastbound along Route 112, approximately four or five miles east of the crash site. The person that he saw appeared to be young and was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and had a light-colored hood. Interestingly, Rick's sighting wasn't actually initially reported because he claimed he was confused about his dates. He only later realized the dates coincided with Mora's disappearance when he was going over his work records months later in April which is when he then brought things to the attention of the police. Also during this 8, 8.30 p.m. time frame, there were a few other things going on. Sergeant Smith approached the Westerman house to ask what they'd seen, and he then knocked on Butch's bus, where he was now sitting, which, Butch, what the hell? <laughs> and he asked what Butch had seen. Butch claims he hadn't seen anybody since Mora left, since he left Mora by her car. Butch and Smith then split up to drive around the area to see if they could locate Mora. Butch, in his own words, said, quote, took a ride around the back roads. I was gone about 15 minutes. Then I took a ride to French Pond. Smith allegedly drove westbound on Route 112. According to Fred Murray, though, no search was done that night in the eastbound direction. At 8.49 p.m., Mora's Saturn was towed to a local garage, and EMS and fire trucks left the scene. At 9.30 p.m., Sergeant Smith also left the scene. He was called to a situation where there was a teenager threatening suicide. No one, it should be noted, actually called anybody from the Murray family. This would have been easily done because the car was registered to Fred, and it's like, Tell the man his car has been found abandoned at the very least. And there was also no alert through law enforcement channels that went out to anybody that gave any indication of a solo female walking through the dark, wintry New England night. There was no bolo, no APB, nothing. In fact, authorities would only refer to Mora as missing at 5 p.m. the next day, almost a whole 
24 hours after the last confirmed sighting of her. Excuse me as I scream with rage at the archaic belief that we must wait a designated span of time before counting people as missing. The next day was Tuesday, February 10th, 2004. At 12.36 p.m. the following day, the cops finally deigned to put out a BOLO, a Be On The Lookout report, for Mora. She was described as wearing a dark coat with black hair hanging past her shoulders, standing 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighing 120 pounds. A subsequent second report to the OG BOLO made a few corrections and additions. It shared that Mora was last seen wearing jeans and they corrected her height to be about 5 feet seven inches, and that she was traveling with a black backpack believed to have her missing cell phone and her debit credit cards. At 3.20 p.m. this same day, which this just fucking sends me, at 3.20 the next fucking day, the cops left a voicemail at Fred's house only to tell him that his car, a.k.a. Moore's car, it was just registered in his name, had been found abandoned. Fred was working at the time and didn't actually get the call. I know I'm viewing this from a retroactive perspective of like, oh, if we knew then what we know now. But like, does anybody else think that this is just a little bit wildly cold? <laughs> like, sure, you don't want to incite panic, but put a little urgency into the matter by also, you know, letting him know the weirdness of Mora being missing. I don't know. This just, it, it irks me. At 5 p.m. that same day, Kathleen was notified by their mother, Lori, of what's going on. And she's told the news of Moore being missing. Lori was actually called by the police herself when they couldn't get a hold of Fred. And she was the one who had to disseminate the news to the family. Kathleen then finally gets a hold of Fred and she breaks the news to him about the situation. In that same time frame, Fred actually jumped on the phone himself with the Haverhill police to get more information and to tell them that they need to start looking for Mora ASA fucking P. They tell him that if there's no word of Mora turning up safely by the next morning, that's when the state's fish and game department would begin an initial search. At 5.17 p.m., Mora is finally, for the first time, referred to as being officially missing by the Haverhill police. And again, here we pause to scream into the abyss about how we need to enact change about the reporting mechanisms of missing people. On February 11th, that Wednesday, Fred Murray arrived just before dawn in Haverhill. As police arranged a formal search party, Fred headed to Route 112 Wild Moonsock Road himself to scour the scene and his own looking for any clues, but there was no sign of Mora or any of her things. Throughout the morning, family members also began to arrive in town. Kathleen and their two brothers, Freddie and Kurt, and Maura's sister, Julie, who was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, would fly up a few days later. However, their mother, Lori, was unable to join the search because she had an injured ankle, so she created a sort of headquarters down at the family home. At 8 a.m., the New Hampshire Fishing Game, the Murrays, and others began to search. Let's bring things back to our good friend, Billy, at this moment. 1,800 miles away, Billy was headed to the airport to catch a flight out to New Hampshire from Oklahoma to help with the search. He had requested an emergency leave of absence to do so, 
And according to his mother, she actually called the Red Cross to help them secure it. For what an absolute phone freak Billy was, he actually turned off his little cellular device during his flight to New Hampshire. At some point after he lands, he realized that he has a voicemail. Let's just pan real quick to the verbatim transcript from the CNN interview he did later the next week about this phone call. Quote, I received Tuesday morning last week, right after the accident, another voicemail, a chilling voicemail that was what I believed to be more a whimpering and crying in the background. Later, the cops and others claim that this call was actually from the Red Cross, which, excuse me, what? <laughs> Trying to get in touch with him about those calls made by him and on his behalf to secure his emergency leave. I do not buy this for a goddamn second. Why might you ask? Let's take a quick visit of our timeline. Morris accident occurs on Monday night, February 9th. Haverhill police place a call to Fred Murray to alert him of the car being abandoned at 12, 12.30 on Tuesday the 10th. Still, on Tuesday the 10th, the, the Murray family doesn't even know Maura is missing until around 5 p.m. It's safe to assume someone in the family contacted Billy after 5 p.m. on Tuesday night to tell him about Maura's disappearance because our boy Bill caught a flight to New Hampshire Wednesday morning, February 11th. The call could not possibly have been from the Red Cross because it occurred early Tuesday morning. Not even the Murray family knew Maura was missing at that time. The cops barely knew she was missing. <laughs> Billy claiming he got this mysterious whimpering call from what he is positive was made on Tuesday by Maura while he was at the airport on Wednesday is confounding to say the least. <laughs> and sure, I can give him the benefit of the doubt of messing up his dates Except for a few things. Why was there whimpering if this call was supposed to be from the Red Cross? If this call came in on Tuesday, Billy had no idea Maura was missing. So maybe he deleted it because he didn't know who it was. However, he then claims with all the audacity and assurance of a straight white male that he knows it was Maura on the other end of the line. Which means it was definitely not the Red Cross? I hate this stupid phone call, and I hate Billy's addiction to his phone, failing us when we need it most. Anyway, let's move on with our timeline and put a cap in it about Billy's phone idiocy before I have an aneurysm. On February 11th, we have our first big clue. Like the magnificent gems of existence that they are, we had ourselves one police doggo, on the scene for the first search that was conducted following Moore's disappearance. This brave and majestic bub used his brilliant little noggin and nose to sniff a black leather glove from Moore's car and go about his searching business. Said noble police dog didn't get any hits from the, around the woods or at the nearby homes, but he did track the scent a hundred yards eastbound from where her car was found and then he immediately lost the scent. So, what the fuck does this do? But give the police an idea to speculate that the hella abrupt loss of Maura's scent suggested she got into a passing car. The real question, though, did she do so willingly, 
or was she forced into the car? At 5 p.m., our boy Bill rocks on up to Haverhill with his parents and presumably his phone glued to the side of his face. He is immediately interrogated privately, and then he got questioned immediately after that with his parents. At 7 p.m., we have our first instance of contention between the Murrays and the Haverhill police. The Hatfields and McCoys could never. The cops announce that it's their belief Moore either one, purposely came to the area to run away, or two, purposely came to the area to commit suicide. To that, the Murrays say, fuck that shit, you're wrong. The search continued the next day, Thursday, February 12th, both in New Hampshire and back at UMass Amherst. Bet you forgot the uproar she left behind her there. (laughs) It's on this day that the cops find the absolute loony scene in Maura's room. The packed boxes, the empty walls, that email to Billy about trouble in their relationship. And searching her computer shows them the various places she had downloaded directions to. Campus police also start meeting with Maura's friends from her nursing program and the academic leadership in the nursing school, which, uh, uh-oh, here comes the dropped bomb about Moore's email of lies. Eileen Breslin, who is the dean of the nursing program, shared with police the email Maura sent about taking time off due to the fake death in the family. Breslin later sends an email to the entire nursing program, alerting them about Maura's disappearance. From this, stories and whispers start to emerge about the utter wackadoo nature of Maura's final days on campus. And here I'd just like to say, now would have been a good time to interview Kate and Sarah from the dorm party law enforcement. Also throughout the day, the discovery is made that her credit and debit cards and cell phone hadn't been used since Monday. The phone couldn't be tracked due to what I assume was a combination of GPS not really being shit back in the early aughts, the possibility of a dead battery, and also the fact that cell service up in the area was decidedly not great. In New Hampshire, the search efforts also continued. Canvassing, handing out flyers, the general activities a group would take to find a missing loved one are all being utilized as the Murray search for Mora. Fred and Billy also hold a joint press conference that night a few towns over in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Fred pleaded for Maura to come home. Quote, I don't know what the matter is or the trouble you think you might be in, but it isn't anything we can't solve, he said through the media. Quote, it's me. You can tell me. We'll work it out until we solve it. Just like a moment to pause because I so desperately just want justice for Fred Murray. Ugh. Maybe in retaliation for the family going to the media, the first press coverage by the police is reported the very next day. Haverhill cops claim that they believe Moore is headed towards Kangamagus Highway or its surrounding area, and they also also officially listed her as, quote, endangered and possibly suicidal. Again, the Murrays are highly unpleased by this assertion that the cops have that Mora is suicidal. As the week began to close out, family members planned to continue their search into Vermont on Friday, reasoning that Maura could have been headed to Burlington or Stowe, like her map quest directions indicated. But real quick, let's just make a list of how 
honestly badly that Haverhill cops goofed throughout the first 10 days of Maura being missing. Fred walked into Vermont police stations on Friday, and it was only then that he found out that Vermont police, who were so upsettingly close to the scene, knew nothing about Maura's disappearance. She had directions to Stowe and Burlington printed out, and the Haverhill police didn't even tell their neighboring law enforcement. Fred also found out that when Maura's car was found, the Haverhill police had not called ahead to alert the other police stations along Route 112 of the situation. Also, during this painful impatience testing 10 days, Fred learned that some of the neighbors living in Dam eyeshot of the accident had not even been interviewed. The second search for Mora was conducted on February 19th. This one was a ground and air search, and they had a helicopter with thermal imaging tech, tracking dogs, and cadaver dogs. The FBI at this point also officially joined the investigation, and the search was announced to be nationwide. At the end of February, the police returned the items found in Mora's car to her family. Let's just keep a note of that. On March 2nd, the Murray family finally tragically checked out of their motel, and the Roush family also left New Hampshire. Fred, though, became a regular at the scene. He would return to the area to conduct his own searches every weekend for more than a year. On April 29th, after finally getting his damn date straight, Rick Forcier the contractor who reported seeing someone walking down the highway the night and time Moore disappeared, is interviewed by the Stadies. His time records check out, and his story is deemed, quote, credible. However, this does result in a third search taking place on May 8th. Canine teams, fish and game officers, etc., search the area that 4CA might have seen Moore running, but no new leads are discovered. Many moons later, this is the period I like to refer to it as, many moons later during the search for Mora and straight-up weirdness that also took place during those same moons. On March 19, 2004, another college-aged female disappeared after getting off of work, leaving behind an abandoned car just 66 miles away in Montgomery, Vermont, 66 miles from where Mora was last spotted. Everyone, let me introduce you to Brianna Maitland. Obviously, two such similar disappearances are going to set the media mounds and a few cops running, but state police swear up and down that there is no link between both Mora and Brianna's disappearances. And to be fair, there are several differences to note. Mora was headed somewhere unbeknownst to truly anyone but her and God. Brianna, on the other hand, was leaving her job at a local inn, and she explicitly had told co-workers that she was heading home. Brianna was running with a dicey crowd before she vanished. Drug dealers, party people. She even got viciously beat up three weeks before her disappearance. And it's speculated that someone in that crowd killed her about a drug deal gone wrong. Whereas in contrast, Mora was known, for the most part, exempting her legal and drinking woes, to be pretty straight and narrow. In both April and June of 2004, the police had to make public statements claiming Mora and Brianna's cases weren't linked and that there was not a serial killer on the loose. Which, okay, fine, I get it, do your job. Specifically, on June 8th, 2000, 
for the Vermont and State Police, Vermont and New Hampshire State Police came together to issue this joint statement. Quote, investigators believe that Mora was headed for an unknown destination and may have accepted a ride in order to continue to that location. This is according to Lieutenant Scarinza. It was also added that there were, quote, no signs of any struggle or any other evidence which would indicate that a crime had been committed. However, weirdness is afoot. Exactly two weeks after that joint statement was made, a New Hampshire state trooper rocked up to Kathleen's doorstep in Hanover, Maura's older sister, for those who may have forgotten. And this trooper was requesting all of the items found in Maura's car be returned to police custody right that second. And it should be noted, Maura's belongings have been given back to the family within two weeks of the accident. That was still in February. In the same breath, this trooper said that they also would be confiscating the hard drive of Maura's computer that had been in her dorm room at the time of her disappearance, and they took custody of her car again, even though it had been sitting in a rinky-dink garage up in New Hampshire ever since the night of her accident. One more time, that was again back in February. This was June. The purpose for this seizure and reclaiming? The trooper claimed that a major crimes unit of the state police were only just then in June stepping into the case and they wanted to do a forensic testing on all of the items. Fred Murray just about blew a fucking gasket when he heard this. What with the MCU getting involved for the first time in four months after the initial fact. And to this day, the family is still in the dark about why the items were seized specifically on that day. Obviously, I have some hashtag fucking questions. <laughs> why did the cops demand to have all of Mara's belongings brought back into their custody so soon after making that joint statement in regards to Brianna Maitland's disappearance, what suspicions were they working with when doing so? Because best believe, I don't think that this was a weird one-off thing. Did the police have reason to believe that there may have been a connection between Moore and Brianna? And if so, what the hell was it? In late 2004, a local named Larry Moulton gave Fred a rusty stained knife that had belonged to his brother, Claude. Weird kind of gift, you might say, but Claude was a local man with a criminal past, violent tendencies, and he had lived less than a mile from where Maura's car was found. Larry claimed that Claude and his girlfriend were said to have acted strangely after Maura's disappearance became publicized, strange enough to the point that a few days after Larry gave Fred the knife, Claude allegedly scrapped his Volvo. Needless to say, along with this gift of the knife, Larry came singing a song to the tune that he believed his brother Claude had something nefarious to do with Moore's disappearance. I'll take what the fuck for 800, Trebek. Fred, being a good, stalwart Fred, even with how much the police was goofing and had already goofed, tried, which is the key word here, to turn the knife over to them, but he was shut out. When he went to turn it in, the secretary at the headquarters claimed no one was available to take the alleged evidence and that Fred would just have to wait to come back another day. 
frustrated, obviously. Fred said, fuck this noise, and instead mailed the knife, along with the description of all the information that he'd been given by Larry, to the police. A few days later, he received a proof of receipt, but never heard from the cops about the knife he mailed and this new potential suspect. Again, I say, Trebek, I will actually take, why are these cops the worst for 1,000? Please and thank you. Though the cops didn't do jack about the Moulton brothers, volunteers in the Murrays certainly did. In October 2006, a group of volunteers began a two-day search within the immediate area of where Moore's car was found, including the infamous A-frame house. The A-frame house was located just less than a mile from Moore's accident and where, coincidentally, Claude Moulton lived at the time of her disappearance. On the first day, one of the cadaver dogs searching the house had a hit on its second level, which led to more extensive searching by more of the trained doggos the next day. On the second day, these doggo crime fighters went, truly in Fred's own words, quote, bonkers. The dogs were losing it over a downstairs closet and specifically over the closet's carpet. I also think it should be noted, cadaver dogs are trained to identify decomposing bodies that cannot, however, distinguish the identities of those between those same bodies. That is to say, if a body was and looks like it had indeed been stored in the closet, these benevolent babies couldn't actually identify if the body was in fact Mora's. Following the bonkers explosion by the dogs, the volunteer investigators took a few trash bags out of the house. One bag was solely designated for holding a giant piece of carpet from the closet, which was supposed to be divided into two portions one for the Stadies, who couldn't be bothered to join the search, and one for that same group of volunteer investigators. Guess what? There are a multitude of hashtag questions about this stupid carpet. So, for the cops' portion of the carpet, their lab was supposed to determine if the stains on the carpet were, one, blood, and two, if the blood was, in fact, Mora's. Seven months after this discovery, results were not available and to this day, they've still not been made available. Also, apparently, there was confusion over who has custody of the damn carpet. The head investigator at the time, who was actually sick on the day of the search, bear this in mind, he was the one who led the volunteer group, said that the cops weren't interested in the search or the evidence that they found. So they actually never took the carpet into police possession. And with the volunteers, some Nimrod who, quote, no longer has business relations, which, what does that mean, is the one who had the carpet in his own custody. However, the current president of the Volunteer Organization of Investigators and who was present the day of this monumental search claims that all of the evidence, including the carpet, was in fact given to the state troopers. Where's the carpet? Who knew carpet would mean so much? <laughs> Regular searches for more continued all the way through December 2005, including a one-year memorial at the site of the accident in, on February 9th, 2005. Also in 2005, Fred filed a lawsuit against various law enforcement agencies involved in the search for Mora 
including against the New Hampshire State Police. On the 10th and 13th anniversaries of Moore's disappearance, the New Hampshire State Police have made public statements stating that though they haven't had any credible sightings of Moore's since the night of her disappearance, they still maintain that the case is open. And to that I say, sure, Jan. In February 2019, Fred made public his belief that Mora is dead and that he suspects a nearby house that had yet to be searched, but cadaver dogs had nevertheless responded to it, is in fact where Mora's remains lie. Just two months later in April 2019, sidebar, who remembers this day because I surely do. In April 2019, formal excavation of the home Fred mentioned was done after several years of attempting to do so. Fred had never been allowed to search it as the previous owners refused to cooperate. To that I say, what do you know and when did you know it? Once these owners had sold the house, the new owners, bless them, allowed Fred to search the property several times. And in April, they granted the request to have their basement excavated. What they found, however, was heartbreaking. Absolutely nothing. It's here now that I uh, we arrive to the part that I know you've all truly been waiting for, the theorizing part of this tale. Here, I'm going to be laying out the major theories that hold credence and or fit well enough to be considered at least strongly viable options, because trust me when I say there is truly not enough time in the world, even as we're all in the middle of a global pandemic and quarantine, to discuss at length all of the minute and fringe theories that crop up in the Maura Murray world. Listed in absolutely no preferential order, I present to you the theories surrounding Maura Murray's disappearance. Theory number one, perished in the woods. There are countless stories of dead bodies that are found literally feet off of paths that get covered up with debris and aren't found for years. See also Ted Bundy, Gary Ridgway of Green River Infamy, etc., etc. Mixed in darkness, maybe intoxication, maybe a weird mental state, and truly anything is possible. Ocam's razor is widely referenced by those who consider this the simplest explanation. If we subtract all of the assumptions about the case, the absolute facts are this. A young woman crashed her car, and she was last seen outside in the freezing cold. You do that math. Multiple potential options also come to mind when we decide to delve deeper into this scenario. One being, Mara is drunk and simply not thinking at all. And I mean, who among us? She stumbled into the woods and got lost. If she had an unknown mental state, see also that crying meltdown that has never fully been explained, coupled with her stress, overarching anxiety, potential burgeoning mental health crisis, even a possible concussion from the accident, it makes a lot of sense that she would stumble in and get lost. Don't forget, she was probably fearful of the cops because girlfriend had a shitload of alcohol, an allegedly alcoholic-smelling Coke bottle in her front seat, and just her whole blossoming problem with the law in general. Maura could feasibly walk into the woods thinking she'll be fine to hide out for a few minutes and got lost. For whatever reason, she wanted to get away from the wreck. She could easily wander in, get lost, and succumb to the elements. 
add any of the above with the plot twist of twisting an ankle or otherwise getting injured, she easily could have succumbed to the elements. While I do think that these are logical dots to connect, we have no verifiable evidence of her actual state of mind or her potential state of intoxication. I will say that even sober, it is so possible to get turned around in those woods and accidentally die of exposure. It's not a stretch at all. Even if you know the woods you're in, everything starts to look the same, especially at night. Panic, if you were experiencing that, would make it even worse, as would any bit of intoxication, no matter how slight. This is all, you know, coming from me as a uh, friendly Girl Scout camp fail out. So <laughs> I know the woods have been searched, but that doesn't mean that she's not in them. And let me run that back for you. I know the woods have been searched with no discoveries, but that doesn't mean Mora is not still in them. Part of the reason missing persons are often found by hunters is that these people are so much more attuned to their surroundings in nature because they're so familiar with the area. And being so familiar, it pops out to them bright as day when there is something weird appearing. I, like I said, a Girl Scout camp failure. <laughs> I could easily walk past a body in the woods and not even notice because my city dwelling ass thought I saw a pile of leaves. However, if we do have an inexperienced outdoors person walking through those same woods, what I thought was a pile of leaves, they could recognize it as a corner of a jacket or something else that doesn't fit. And they would be able to know that something here wasn't right. But knowing everything that we do know about Mora makes it plausible she took that option of seeking refuge in the woods. Once she realized she had nowhere to truly run and hide. And as a runner, what else did she do best but run? The cops were already on one side of her, and the neighbors, specifically Butch, were on the other. So it's completely within the realm of possibility to understand why she might go in there initially to hide out for a bit until the coast was clear, so to speak. But even if she did go into the woods just for a bit, hell, maybe not even very far from the street itself, and thus the site of, you know, civilization. If she did do that, she wouldn't come out. I think the combination of alcohol possibly having hit her head in the accident, as we have reason to believe from the cracked inside windshield, and how cold it was, we're talking about 28 or 30 degrees Fahrenheit. It's really quite easy to understand how she might have succumbed to the elements and that she's still up there in those mountains just waiting to be found. Theory number two, an abduction or opportunistic killer, aka Murder Inc. This theory proposes that in the roughly seven minute span Mora had between her interaction with Butch and when Sergeant Cecil Smith arrived on the scene, she was abducted. The stranger abduction theory overlaps with some of the later theories that have cropped up over the years that Mora fell victim to the Loon Mountain 3, that somehow Israel Keys was responsible for her death, which honestly missed me with that because it was proved he wasn't anywhere near New Hampshire at the time, or the supposed suspicious red truck that was allegedly spotted near the scene of the accident. 
The biggest problem with the abduction theory as a whole, including the detail of someone abducting her and later killing her, is how small that window of opportunity was for a murderer to take Mora without being seen. Even if Butch Atwood only spent a few minutes talking to Mora, she couldn't have been alone for more than 10 minutes by the time Smith and the EMS and fire trucks arrived. And although the area is obviously heavily wooded, it's a forest, it's not exactly desolate considering that three other neighbors could and did see her from their homes that night. However, one of the strongest clues that supports this theory is the fact that search dogs have always lost Mora's scent about 100 yards from the site of her accident. This, we can assume for those who subscribe to this theory, indicates that she either willingly hitched a ride from a passing motorist or she was forced into a car as it just happened to drive by. However, I will say, there are some subsets to this theory that also deserve their spot in the sun to foster discourse. The house unbeknownst to us yet theory. It's kind of simple. She met her aunt in a nearby house and she was either taken somewhere in the White Mountains or she was buried close by in another basement or backyard. She also, she could have been removed before dogs went in. See also the house that they excavated in April 2019. Alternatively, she could have been picked up by a man or a woman and she met her end elsewhere. But if she wouldn't accept a lift from the bus driver, why would she get into a car with a stranger unless she was forced? And would someone be roaming around the area at the exact same time? What are the odds of that likelihood being so lucky for this would-be murderer? The probability of a killer roaming the roads at that time, like I said, on that day, they're kind of low. <laughs> if it happened that way, it would it was just simply unlucky timing. It's very possible that she was dropped off and met her on somewhere else. But maybe it wasn't even by the person who picked her up. And it wasn't at any of the houses that we've searched since. The A-frame theory. <laughs> Fred wholeheartedly believes that Mora was abducted, especially since the whole Rusty Knife Molten Brothers thing in late 2004. That was, as a reminder for those who might have already forgotten, since we are working with a lot of material here, a man named Larry Moulton came forward with a knife that he thought could be the murder weapon. It belonged to his brother Claude, who lived in the infamous A-frame house, roughly three-quarters of a mile from the crash site. In 2006, new owners of the A-frame house allowed investigators to come into the house. Cadaver dogs made a hit in a second-floor closet, and carpet samples were taken for testing. How fucking ever the chain of custody got, honestly, fucked up between the state police and private investigators. What about Moulton's knife, you ask? Fred turned it over to New Hampshire State Police, and results were just never released. However, all of that was back in the mid-aughts, and our A-frame theory picks back up in 2016. That year, the Missing Maura Murray podcast returned to the A-frame house, where they found what appeared to be bloodstains in a closet. Also, wood chips were turned over to a scientist who was able to confirm the presence of human blood. The samples, however, were found to be too deteriorated to actually determine with 100p certainty whether the blood was in fact Mora's. 
But, I mean, I think it still needs to be said. Something is fucking up with the Avram house. In conjunction with the abduction murder theory, there is the local murderer theory. And theories abound about people in the Woodsville slash Haverhill area being the main suspect. Given the nature of the area, it wasn't actually uncommon for locals to own police scanners, which leads many residents to think that Morrow's accident caught the attention of someone with nefarious intentions. There have also been whispers over the years about potential, unnamed for now, suspects living in the woods who may have been close enough to the accident to harm, mislead, or otherwise bamboozle Mora. It must also be said, the Brianna Maitland of it all. As unlikely as it is that there is any connection between the two cases, leads more people than you expect to support the local serial killer theory. Less than a month after Morris' disappearance, and only 60-ish miles away? I think we can all agree that stranger things have happened. See also the current state of our fucking union? <laughs> the basis of the opportunistic abduction and murder theory is, again, one that aligns with Ocam's razor, if a bit more intensive than just succumbing to the outdoors theory. Moore fled and was coping with alcohol intoxication that had already landed her in enough trouble, which was why she fled. And her vulnerable situation wound her up with someone who took advantage of her in a most vulnerable and desperate state. It's the definition of crime, of a straight-up opportunity. Theory number three, she orchestrated her disappearance. This theory proposes that something monumental drove Mora to the utter desperation that she felt she had to leave life as she knew it and begin again, most likely outside of the country. Reasons that have been suggested for her disappearance are as followed. One, she may have been pregnant, as evidenced by internet searches on her UMass computer for terms related to pregnancy, and that she knew that this would upset her family too much. She wanted to keep the baby, so she withdrew money, cashed out her recently issued student loan check, and fled town, possibly to Canada. This theory also centers around several purported eyewitness sightings of a woman resembling Maura in Canada. Two, her relationship with Billy was floundering, and she felt she had no other way to, quote, escape him or whatever trouble was surrounding their relationship other than to legitimately get the hell out of Dodge. Three, Things in Mora's life in general were unraveling. There was infidelity in her relationship. She had just crashed her dad's car. Her sister had relapsed. And she had her own variety of legal troubles in both her past and hanging over her head. These stresses could cause anyone to want to try and start over. Much like the opportunistic abduction murder theory, however, this one also has a few subsets to add depth to its potential. First, we'll visit the romantic rendezvous. <laughs> the romantic rendezvous theory proposes that Mora took off with either Hussein Baghdadi, the track coach she had an affair with, or another lover, the mystery guy she may have left the dorm party with, and they headed towards the White Mountains. The theory also speculates that Hussein Baghdadi would have known the combination to the UMass Outing Club cabin in that area to help them gain entry and the area surrounding the UMass cabin should definitely be more thoroughly searched with this in mind. An alternative to the solely romantic rendezvous theory is that Morris somehow met up with Billy while in New Hampshire. 
During the time that Maura went missing, Billy was on duty at Fort Sill out in Oklahoma, helping out with basic training. Reports do indicate that there were only two men who could verify Billy's presence at Fort Sill that weekend, but neither of them have actually ever gone on record. As far as public opinion goes, Billy's whereabouts on the night of Moore's disappearance are up for the debate, though phone records have shown he was in Oklahoma. For the fun of speculating, though, here's my idea. What if Billy had a second phone that he used, and he left his first phone back in Oklahoma to cover his tracks? Would this explain why and how he sent us all into conniptions, trying to figure out his CNN interview admission of getting the whimpering Red Cross voicemail on Tuesday, a whole day before anyone actually knew Moira was missing? You guessed it. Hashtag questions. <laughs> the tandem driver theory is a theory that dovetails with the romantic rendezvous theory and helps explain how Mora could have disappeared so quickly from the scene of the accident. If she was traveling in tandem with another known driver, meaning someone that she actually knew was following to help her do whatever she was doing, that driver would have either come across Moore's disabled vehicle and picked her up, or they would have circled back around to get her once they realized Moore was not behind them. To the shock of no one, I have hashtag questions about this theory overall. Most people who voluntarily go missing eventually return. We have truly had no verifiable sightings or contact from Mora since February 9, 2004. And I find it really hard to believe that Mora, if she did indeed create a new life for herself with or without her family's involvement, would stay away or not return even after her mother died. On Mora's birthday, only something incredibly fucked up could have happened to her that would bar her from at the very least seeing her mother one last time before she succumbed to her cancer. Authorities have discredited any alleged eyewitness accounts. There is a woman in Canada who may have gasped when someone approached her by calling her Mora, and there has been no activity on any of Mora's bank accounts, her cell phone, no hits to her social security number, etc. That whole thing creating a new identity, having forged documents, new bank accounts, that takes an insane amount of not just careful planning, but honestly a good deal of cunning. Those are two things I think we can almost say for certain Mora was not good at. <laughs> See, the credit card fraud. <laughs> there is also no verifiable evidence that Mora was even pregnant. For fuck's sake, she had birth control pills in her car. <laughs> also, Fellow nursing students later stated that they were instructed by a professor to research terms related to pregnancy on the internet. A clue has actually been explained, which, wow, what a rare feeling in this case. Also, if Maura was truly planning a new life for herself, starting things off with a car accident, assuming it was her plan, part of her plan, is an awful way to kick things off. The police and literally everyone ever would be very carefully, methodically looking for you if this was the case. And then theory number four, suicide. There is in fact, and sadly evidence, Mora could have been in a mindset where she simply didn't care about her own life anymore and that this fateful trip was one she intended to be her final. They are, you know, she was drinking and driving less than 36 hours after she already had been in an accident where she was likely pretty intoxicated. Coupling her accidents with her mandated probation, 
that'll scare anyone about what's going to happen to them because obviously she wasn't staying out of trouble. Leaving that questionable email to Billy in her dorm room. What was in the email that made it raise so many eyebrows of the police? And then there was that strange packing up of her dorm room and returning borrowed things. Personally, however, I strongly do not believe Maura intended to take her own life when she embarked on this trip. Stressed out? Hell yes. Maura was a walking definition of stressed out. But I don't think she was necessarily suicidal. There is no hard and fast credible evidence to support that theory from any of her friends, her college peers, work, or family. Staring off into space at work does not mean she's suicidal. The Murray family is absolutely adamant that Maura would not have taken her own life as well. And I just want to say disclaimer that yes, it must be said that suicide ideation and completion certainly are not logical. I realize I'm approaching these sort of cons to the theory from a logical viewpoint and not someone who may have been in a crisis. That said, these are some other instances in all of this that contradicts the idea that Mora was planning to commit her suicide. Picking up the accident report forms. Why would she go to the trouble if she knew that she'd never file them? Bringing her birth control and textbooks, presumably to study or do homework from. It seems odd for someone intending to end their life to bring items that relate to continuing on in life, if that makes sense. Other things that she packed that make no sense when considering she planned to end her life. Makeup, shampoo, crest whitening strips. These are all found and known to be in her possession at the time of her disappearance. She also sent emails to her professors and her boss at the art gallery, which was actually her second job, with an excuse for her absence. It was a lie, but why bother with it if you were planning on ending your life? Would she really end her life in a way that she would never be found, knowing her mother was sick and would forever wonder where she was? No note? Nothing? It's here we arrive at the hashtag fucking question segment, even though I know we've been asking them all throughout this case. These are comprised of things I said that we would get to, and you know what? Let's discuss them. If Maura was running from something more than her emotional exhaustion, what was she running from? Did something more happen during her phone call with Kathleen that Friday night, right before she disappeared? More than what Kathleen has already disclosed? Why did Maura take her father's car to the party, especially if she lived within walking distance of the party? To Kate and Sarah, I say, what really happened at the dorm party the night before Maura left? Why the hell did she drive to Fred's hotel after the party? And what the hell is in the email to Billy that she left in her dorm room? What was really going on in their relationship? Why was Billy frantically trying to get in touch with her before her disappearance? And what information did he get from her friends? Fun fact, the Salomon couple that Moore reached out to when she was trying to book accommodations before she left campus, the Salomons weren't even contacted by police until October 2004, when Billy's mom actually contacted them. To quote Keenan Thompson, what's up with that? The scent disappearing so close to the accident scene. Why? How? What? The great mystery of police car... 001. Who was actually driving 
that car that night. And what is the deal with the police car's mysterious appearance by witness A before Smith even called over the radio to say he had arrived? Why are the Haverhill police a little bit sketchy? Seriously, their whole behavior begs the question that there is some sort of police cover-up happening. What is up with that voicemail trace of the Red Cross on Billy's phone? What type of bill was Billy racking up every month with these incessant calls to more? <laughs> Girlfriend, even if you were getting away for some R&R, why were you drinking Franzia and Bailey's, Kahlua, and vodka? Why did Mora bring her cell phone charger, her birth control, insurance forms, and school textbooks? Someone looking to get away surely wouldn't be thinking about homework during a mental health crisis or if they were considering ending their life. Are there key details that the Murrays haven't shared with law enforcement about Mora? Is it coincidental that she was taking a break and foul play happened? Or did she purposely just go missing? Where was she actually headed? And finally, why would you ever mix sky blue malt with red wine? I am still not over that. <laughs> and finally, I want to share with you my personal theory. I know Ocam's razor is what most people unfamiliar with the case details always state, but there is a lot amiss here. Some might recall all those hashtag questions I just listed, asked today, and asked yesterday. From conflicting witness statements, witness A, and seeing police SUV 001 before Smith officially arrived at the scene, to car damage not consistent with hitting a tree, to people coming forward with rusty knives and so on and so forth, and oh my god, when does it stop? All of that considered, where does that leave us? For me and my theories, I think she was gallivanting off for a weekend on her own to put both literal and metaphorical distance between herself and the problems arising in her life at the time and on campus. But in the midst of doing so, she met with her unintended death. I am firmly in the camp that believes Mora is, through whatever means caused it, no longer with us. And I don't believe she lived more than a few days time after the night or hour of her crash. Those are the two truths in the Mora case that I hold to be self-evident. This though is where I'm stuck. And like a classic Libra, I can't fully commit to one of the two theories I personally subscribe to. Logically, I think it's well within the realm of possibility that she was scooped up by a nefarious driver who played the part of kindly roadside helper. It explains a dead end trail the dogs followed, the bafflingly fast disappearance she seemed to make between being seen at her car by Butch and the general vibe of straight up disappearing into thin air. For those who claim the likelihood of a murderer just happening to be in the area is too improbable, I dare to ask, who the fuck are we to know? If this is the scenario that happened, that's not to say Mora fell victim to some sort of seasoned serial killer. Truly anything could have happened that would turn a would-be attacker, scammer, or otherwise scumbag into an unplanned but albeit still guilty killer. At the end of the day, though, I hold fast to the idea that she intended to return to school at some point. She was not going away to disappear into some new life in Canada or to end her life. In my heart of hearts, I honestly think she just wanted some time to think, plan her next move about her personal relationships, 
her legal issues, every other thing that must have felt like a new catastrophe happening in her life. She was met with unexpected foul play after the accident or fled into the woods to avoid dealing with the police. And then she succumbed to the elements. Trust me, I am as frustrated as you are that even at the end of all of this, I still can't offer just one definitive answer as to what I think happened. Did she succumb to the elements accidentally? Was she picked up by someone who ended up taking her life from her? There are just too many perplexities, too many avenues to explore, and simply too many questions beyond the most important one of them all. So, 16 years later, where are we in terms of answering that most important question? Where is Mora? Truth be told, despite all of this information, these facts, the anecdotes, and the theories, it still feels like that this story hasn't ever really left the side of that snowy, cold New Hampshire road in February 2004. We're left only to wonder and to speculate and to soothe ourselves with theories that still leave far too many questions unanswered, even when they're most rational and thought out. In my mind, there is just something so awful, unnerving, and frustrating about all of this that's just hard to shake. And it, that's what draws so many people into this case. In a day and age where we have the answers to millions of questions at the tips of our fingers, not being able to concretely provide an explanation for simply what happened is simultaneously the most maddening and heartbreaking of all. But then again, with how vast and nuanced the information that we do have about what took this beautiful, multifaceted, 21-year-old track athlete up to the White Mountains on an inexplicable journey. It's clear that while we may not ever have all of the answers to the questions that we ask, Maura's story, regardless of that, is still one that is very much deserving and one that needs to keep being told. And with that, I give you the end of our Maura Murray episode. I again want to make a, a huge shout out to our first Patreons over here at Dark as Hell, Megan Walker and Jess Plant. You can follow along with the different things I get up to on social media with Dark as Hell on Instagram at, at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word. Over on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash darkasthellpodcast. I also have a Gmail set up, so if you've got questions, comments, concerns, you can hit me up over at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, I have to say, this is truly one of my favorite cases, and it's one that really does keep me haunted. I'll see you back here, though, next week with another episode of getting dark as hell.